Hi everyone, Ruben Dinarina here. I'm really excited today to interview Dr. Arya, who has a really interesting career journey and background in clinical psychology. Um, Dr. Arya is one of the world's leading performance psychologists and works with leading sportsmen, Hollywood actors, and CEOs on everything from relationships uh, to high performance. So Dr. Arya, thanks for agreeing to make this happen. It's my pleasure, Ruben. It's, uh, it's lovely to chat to you. Thank you. So to start off, let's talk about a bit more about your background and how you actually got into psychology. Was this something you always had in mind, something you always wanted to do, or is, did you kind of just fall into this? I took the scenic route to psychology. So whenever I was at school, I, uh, I knew that I enjoyed, you know, the sciences and history and art, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure where to put my focus. And my parents are both medical doctors. And one day they just said, why don't you be a doctor? And I think I was in my mid-teens. And from that moment, without really even questioning it any further, I just started out on this path. So I, uh, I went to medical school. I was at Edinburgh. And it's interesting, looking back, there's so many signs that would tell me that I'm not a great fit for a life uh, as a medical doctor like I don't like hospitals mm. you know, I don't enjoy being in hospitals and whilst I'm you know intrigued by human anatomy and physiology it was actually it's the mind which I've always been more fascinated by and so it was actually in my in two and a half years into um, studying medicine that my dad was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of cancer. And the prognosis at the time was very poor. And we were beginning to accept the possibility that he might not be with us for longer than six months. And I will add in the caveat now that remarkably, he made a full recovery and he's still around today, which is wow. phenomenal. Yeah, thanks, Ruben. But at the time we had this conversation and I remember it very clearly and he said, you know, Aria, if you went into medicine to please us because we think it's a good career and it has security uh, and is, you know, respected within the community and, and all these things which are important to my parents, if you went into it for us, then please don't continue for us. You need to, to make your own decisions and decide what's right for you. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I couldn't imagine being a medical doctor for the next four or five decades. So, so I left, I began working fundraising for different charities as a charity fundraiser, essentially the guy in the street that comes up to you with a, a charity bib and, uh, and tells you about a charity. So probably the most hated, uh, despised um, kind of uh, workers in the UK, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I was you know, working outside often in different parts of Scotland where it could be raining for eight hours of the day. But I was connecting to something bigger, which was that I believed in these charities. I felt like it was making a difference. And, and I could see my role within that. So I think I, got, I, I drew a huge sense of meaning from that. And, and I really just explored and, and, and found my way. And if I enjoyed something, I'd do more of it. And if I didn't, I would do less of it. And essentially, that then took me down a path which involved um, event management, involved acting, 
and and eventually psychology. So eventually this led to you starting your own uh, uh, business in psychology, working with Hollywood actors, CEOs. So I want to talk about mindfulness. How would you describe that? How would you describe mindfulness? There's an individual called John Kabat-Zinn, and he's essentially considered the Western father of mindfulness, and that he, he really brought this Eastern concept uh, into Western medical practice. And one of the definitions he uses uh, is that mindfulness is the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose to the present moment. And you can almost add with compassion and curiosity. So that's quite a mouthful, but we can break it down. Uh, Essentially, it's awareness. It's this human state of being conscious or aware of our experience. And you can have awareness of your inner experience, the thoughts you're thinking, the emotions you're feeling, the bodily sensations you're having. So we can be having, we could be having a conversation and you might say something which will bring up a thought in my head or I might feel an emotion. I could be offended or I could be excited or I could be uh, curious. Um, And it's about being aware of what's happening around us. And so really, it's a human quality that we already possess. But the way that our mind is built, research has shown that on average, our mind will drift off to a different thought or onto something independent to what we're doing about 47% of the time, which is phenomenal. You know, half of the time we are somewhere else. Now, this can bring huge benefits, but it can also be detrimental in that we're often less happy whenever our mind has wandered. And so mindfulness is really about being present. When I'm talking to you, Ruben, I'm talking to you and I'm not thinking about what I'm going to cook for dinner. (laughs) If I'm with my partner, I'm giving her that attention and care during that moment. When you're watching television, you're engaged in enjoying the show. When you're working, you're directing your attention to your work rather than checking how many likes you got on, the, on your last Instagram post. So it's, it's actually remarkably profoundly simple, but practical because the more you can be present, the more you then have access to clarity, to greater self-understanding, to more creativity and to more wisdom in that moment. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just thinking from an audience's perspective, like a lot of people might be thinking, that sounds great. Like I want to practice being mindful. But sometimes I feel like that's kind of easier said than done, because we live in a world today where there's so many distractions, notifications from email, social media. I mean, one of the things I do is I've turned on, uh, I've turned off all notifications for uh, social media. And I, uh, it's only when I actually go on those apps that I can see uh, what's going on. And that has helped me a lot. But how do you practice um, mindfulness when there's so many distractions and you're getting messages and companies are trying to get our attention um, and spending billions on, on marketing? So how do you mm. practice mindfulness in the midst of that? The roots to mindfulness uh, can be broken down into what some people call formal mindfulness practice. And that is some sort of meditation where you might take one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes for some people, but you take a certain period of time 
and you literally bring your attention to your breath. So you focus on your breathing, you focus on the in-breath, and you focus on the out-breath. And you just notice, you notice the sensations of the air going through your nostril, of your belly rising, and of it going back down. You can even just do it for one breath, one mindful breath. So that's a formal practice. And what you'll find is as you do that, your mind will become distracted. It'll go somewhere else. It'll jump onto another thought. It will think, what am I doing? I'm bored. It will jump ahead to the future. It'll remember something from the past. And the whole practice simply involves bringing that attention back to your breath. Now, you can also practice it informally. And I think this is, in a way, much more feasible and accessible to more people, where whatever you're doing, you attempt to bring your, your attention to it. And if you no, notice that it, it goes away, you simply bring it back. You don't need to judge yourself for becoming distracted. You don't need to give yourself a hard time or say, you know, why am I so easily distracted? Why am I, am I lazy? Am I, you know, I'm not trying hard enough. You just notice that your mind has a tendency to drift off and then you bring it back. But like you're tapping into, we can, we can help cultivate these conditions by taking an external approach. Like you're saying, limiting distractions. It actually, I've found that it does make a big difference turning off notifications or leaving your mobile in another room when you sit down to eat or putting it onto airplane mode while you work or asking the rest of your family not to disturb you for the next hour and a half as you're recording or editing a podcast. Or there's a, a limit on Instagram that reminds you when you've been on the app for, I put my non-consistent limits. So, you know, it'll pop up. And so you can, yeah, take an external approach to support that. But then the key, the key part I'd say is taking an internal approach. And you can actually even use distractions to become more mindful. So you can anchor a habit with another. So every time your mobile phone rings, you might then take three mindful breaths before you answer it, just so that you can transition to what you were doing to that present moment and, and dealing with that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think those are really useful, uh, useful tips and the audience can really benefit from that. So thank you for sharing those. Um, I want to talk also about like this whole idea of getting to a flow state where um, uh, I've heard you talk about this on, on other podcasts as well. But um, I was wondering if you could give practical advice and tips on how you can get to a flow state quickly. Yes. Well, it might help for uh, your listeners that maybe describe what a flow state is. Yeah. So it's actually it's a concept that uh, this Hungarian-American psychologist um, is attributed to founding. And he's actually got one of the most difficult names in psychology to pronounce when you're reading it. It's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he describes flow as, as flow as being this state of complete immersion in an activity. So if you've ever heard someone talk about time whenever they felt like their performance excelled and they were just in the zone, they were probably describing an experience of flow. So it involves being you know, completely involved in an activity for its own sake. You're not doing it for the external recognition or credit. It's often because you intrinsically enjoy the activity. Often your sense of self and sense of time falls away and it's just like you're just playing out 
you know, one, one action after another without much conscious thought even. Now, the things that help to get into it is often to have a goal and a plan of action to what it is that you want to do, to find an activity that you enjoy or you're passionate about. Now that's key. There has to be an element of challenge. It needs to push you outside of your comfort zone. It has to be taxing on your abilities so that you have to stretch your current skill level in order to meet that demand. So you're not going to experience a state of flow while having a bath. You know, or putting your clothes away. It's going to be something which engages you, which you're passionate about, and which is challenging. And the, the advantages are that people then tend to, this tends to lead to improved performance, um, in, and that's been shown across the board from teaching to athletics to creativity, and it leads to you learning more and developing your skills, because you need to have mastery of a certain skill in order to achieve this new challenge. Great. Yeah. And connected to that, I also want to ask about uh, productivity and, and multitasking. First of all, like, like I've heard many different opinions on this, but w when it comes to multitasking, what's your, what's your view on that? And mm. would you say it's possible or um, is it more effective to actually focus on one thing at a time as, as you were talking about before? So multitasking generally refers to whenever someone tries to perform two tasks simultaneously. But this yeah. essentially involves switching from one task to another or performing two, two tasks in rapid succession. And whenever psychologists, psychologists examine this, they look at the cost of this sort of mental juggling. And they'll compare how long it takes for people to achieve everything, get everything done, and then measure the cost and time for switching tasks. The data tends to show that participants lose time when they have to switch from one task to another. And as a task becomes more complex, you lose even more time. And so there's data to suggest that even having these mental blocks because you need to switch tasks and then re-engage in that task can cost as much as 40% of your productive time. Wow. So going back to what you were saying, my advice would be to essentially focus on one task at a time. You know, for an actor in that scene, it will be that moment that is unfolding. You know, for a, for a sportsman, um, in terms of performance, it's that one, that one stroke, that one play yeah. in that one moment, which is right here, right now. Nothing else really exists. And whenever you whenever you are able to really just deal with that one single task, you're going to have more resources to be able to, to deal with that, um, even in terms of cognitive resources. And I'd say yeah. another part though is that, remember that when, you know, if you're not a sportsman or you're not an actor or you're not looking at, at a specific performance and you're saying, oh, but I'm preparing, I'm at home, I'm working, I'm developing a business, not all tasks are created equal. You know, you want to look for leverage points. What task or action right now will bring the biggest result in line with my goals? You know, time is precious, so you really want to get as much bang for your buck, so to speak. 
Yeah. I actually now want to move on to talk about this whole, and it links to what uh, we were talking a bit about before, which is like thoughts um, and especially mm. the negativity bias um, and um, the human tendency basically to gravitate towards the negative. I've noticed this in my own life actually, when um, even if there's a lot of good things happening, I right. tend to focus on actually what's not not going so well. Could you talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. It, it's great that you've highlighted that it happens in your own life because it is, it's, it's natural. It is uh, a consequence of the way that the brain is built. Negativity is a magnet for our attention. So the scientific research indicates that our brains are highly attuned to negative aspects of the situation. We focus on them more and we're more influenced by negative information than we are by positive information. If you're making a judgment, you tend to weigh the negative information more heavily than positive information. So in terms of this negative negativity bias, you can see it play out in the real world. Uh, the media are much more likely to report horror stories than good news. You know, we're drawn to it. Um, we're not surprised if a dishonest person is honest at times. But as soon as an honest person is dishonest, our perception of them changes. We'll ruminate on negative events more than positive ones. You know, you could have received five great pieces of feedback from someone at work or on an essay, but then there's one negative aspect to it. Or you might receive a couple of compliments that day, but one person says one rude comment and it's what we then, you know, talk about that evening when we're, whenever we're speaking to our friends or our family. And then we can begin to ask, okay, so we have more sensitivity to negative information. Why is that? You know, is there something wrong with us? But really, whenever we take a broad evolutionary view from the start of human history, our survival depended on our ability to stay out of harm's way. And the easiest way to avoid being eaten by a tiger or a bear would be to be hypervigilant to where that tiger was or where that bear was. So we've developed this brain which will automatically scan the surroundings for danger and look for anything fearful. We're also more likely to survive if we jump to the worst case scenario and tend to take a negative view on things. So to give you an example, if you and I were walking in the savannah and we saw something long and brown on the floor and I think, oh, it's the stick. I'll be able to use that later for firewood and I go down to pick it up. And you say, it could be a snake, I'm getting out of here. And I go down to grab it and it is a snake. I die and my genes aren't passed on. You were more fearful and focused on an anxious outcome and you survived. So actually our family lineages have been populated by individuals who are vigilant to danger, who imagine negative outcomes and prepared for the worst case outcome. And yeah. so this, you know, this tendency for the human mind to think negatively, it's an evolutionary hangover. It's completely natural. It's why your mind makes negative judgments. It's why you imagine the worst happening. It's not your fault. It doesn't mean that you're broken, you don't need to be fixed. It's simply the way that the brain has developed over millions of years. You know, the human mind has evolved with a negativity bias. 
And, and do you have any practical um, advice for actually shifting your mindset from, from focusing on negative to actually positive? Mm. So the first step is awareness. It's becoming aware of this internal commentary that's consistently running through our heads. Yeah. We all have an internal narrative that accompanies us throughout the day. The biggest mistake that we can make is just to fuse with these thoughts and not to realize that it's like a, it's like a story that our mind is, is telling us at different times. Now, rather, rather than trying to deny or suppress or judge these thoughts, it's just noticing them. I'm having the thought that blah, 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 blah. And what you'll find is that the thoughts will come and the thoughts will go. Now, you can begin to change your relationship with the thought by asking, is this thought necessarily true? You know, is it 100% true or is it actually more of an opinion? So I remember I was driving, driving down the road and uh, I think I can't remember. I, I would have, I, I did something that was, wasn't great in terms of driving. Mm. And, uh, and my mind just came down on me like a, like a ton of bricks. It was like, you asshole, I cannot believe you did that. Or, you know, another time when I forgot milk and it's like, you idiot, how can you, how can you not pick up the one thing that you meant to? Now, in the past, I would feel bad about it, feel, feel low and think, yeah, I'm an idiot, I'm a failure, like, I can't believe I messed up again, or whatever my mind's telling me. Now, a lot of the time I'll hear it and I'll laugh. Like, whoa, you know, that is harsh. You know, okay, I get it, mind, you're trying to help me out here or protect me, but that is, that's just far too harsh. If a friend said that to me or a family member said it to me, I'd probably be taken aback. And we'd be like, whoa, what's happening in your life for you to say that? So you can begin to change your relationship with your thoughts. Is it true? And even if you think, okay, the, tr the thought is true, probably an infinitely more useful question is, is it helpful? Does buying into this thought empower me to be more confident, to feel better about myself, to make a wiser choice next time, to lead a more meaningful life, to be a better friend, to be a more efficient worker? to achieve my goals if it is moving in that direction great but if it's not what we might want to do is to consciously come up with another more realistic compassionate thought you know begin to develop a voice within our own head that is encouraging and actually says do you know what actually Ruben okay that didn't go ideally but you've got this I can do this differently next time or I can make amends by X, Y, Z. And it's much more likely to lead you to then take effective action rather than just feel bad about who you are or where you are in life. Yeah, I think this is great. Thank you so much for sharing all of these. I, I want to talk about like your experience working with CEOs, celebrities. I mean, I'm assuming they have the same same kind of some of the same problems as as we all do but um what what have you noticed working with them like what are the common common habits common threads that you've seen among um among these successful people it depends on how you're defining success how would you so, define success for me i would say success is whenever you are 
evolving and growing on the internal path or the inner path and the external path. And I'll explain in my head what those are. So the external path has to do with often with what you want to achieve in life, with your career, with um, what you want to accomplish. It could be developing a company or being uh, in a certain profession. Um, your mind might you know, want you to achieve a certain level of um, financial security. Um, it might be to be rich, to be famous, to be powerful. It really doesn't matter. The, the important part is that, is that you're progressing on that journey. And, and I think all those things are fine. If you want to have a lot of money, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with being rich. I think the mistake people make is that they overestimate how much that will make them happy. And so for me, a successful person is someone that's also progressing on the inner journey. Am I becoming the kind of person that I really want to be? Am I developing more kindness and compassion and love? Am I not only an excellent CEO, but a reliable father and a trustworthy husband and a good friend and, and living my life in such a way that I put my head down at night and I can sleep with a clear conscience and feel good about myself? For me, it's that balance, you know, it's, yeah. it's realizing that, that true happiness comes from also your relationship with yourself and, and not falling into the trap of thinking when I achieve X, Y, and Z, I will then be happy. So to, so to go back to your question, often involves excellence. You know, there's that, that wonderful quote from the philosopher Aristotle, who says that we do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence, but rather we have those because we have acted rightly. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So whenever you look at people that, whom you admire, it's not that they're, you know, there will be multiple components as to why they are where they are. But I would say it's not just down to some intrinsic um, qualities that they have. I, what I've noticed is because they take action and they take action consistently and they take action repeatedly and they often mess up, they often make mistakes, but they learn from them and they keep on going. So I think one of the biggest barriers that a lot of us have is that we're afraid. We're afraid of messing up. We're afraid of looking like a failure. We're afraid of our friends and family saying, you know, saying or thinking, and you can do it and, and look what's happened. We're afraid of putting something out in the world that isn't perfect and being judged for it. And so we just end up moving too slowly because we are holding on to fear rather than dancing with possibility and saying, actually, my self-worth has nothing to do with what I'm achieving. I inherently have respect as a person just because I am a person. And so let me just, let me just play, let me try. And in a way, you know, Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've touched on a couple of points that I wanted to follow up on. Um, one of them was this whole idea of when you get 
to a certain point, then you'll be happy. Is there any data to back this up about this whole idea of um, the correlation between income and actual happiness? So we know on the one hand, we know that we tend to habituate to our circumstances. So something that we initially find pleasurable becomes less pleasure giving as time goes by. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I knew that in my head, I just, I felt so strongly that if I got this action hero, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. And that's all I need. I need the action hero for my birthday or Christmas. And you know, that's probably quite a simple example, but we have that later on. We often think, you know, if I get into this university or I earn this amount of money, then I will be content. If we look at the data, it's actually, it's a lot more complex. So the link, there is a link between income and happiness, and it tends to be a positive relationship, but it's not a linear relationship. So it's not the case that as I continue to make more money, I just continue to become happier. You know, the impact of additional income is bigger whenever you have less. So I think it's, you know, the data does suggest that there is a certain amount of money that's important so that we have financial security, that we're meeting our needs, that we're not constantly worried and stressed about, you know, when the next amount of money is coming in. And so actually consistency of income is, is important as well as the amount. You know, if it's, if it's one amount one month and then could drop the next, that's going to create, you know, a certain level of stress. Whenever you look at, so whenever you look at the average life satisfaction of people in different nations, generally, you know, there are exceptions, but generally the least happy nations are the poorest and the happiest nations are the richest. Although there has been some data to show that poorer nations might have more meaning in life than their wealthier counterparts. But there's also data implying that as a nation becomes richer, the happiness of the citizens do not rise. So it's almost as though everyone's becoming wealthier, but because your relative point within society isn't changing and everyone's getting wealthier, you're not really becoming any happier. You can then, you know, to make it more complicated, you can break down happiness. So you can look at happiness in terms of emotional well-being. Now your emotional well-being can be your day-to-day -day feelings. How do you feel every day in terms of joy, sadness, anger, stress? Or your life evaluation. When you reflect on your life, how satisfied are you with your life? And there's studies to show that up to a point, so in the US, whenever they looked at it, it was about 75,000 US dollars. Up to that point, you got a rise in, in happiness. But after that point, your day-to-day -day happiness didn't change. Wow. So you're not, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're not experiencing any more feelings of, of joy or sadness, but your satisfaction does continue to go up a little bit. When you, when you look back on your life, you probably think, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm more satisfied because you might think I've achieved more or I have more or I've, or I've done more. And then, you know, there's also intriguing data to look at. It also depends on how you spend your money. And researchers have concluded that generally 
when you spend money on other people, you tend to be happier. Even although the participants in one study, you know, they were given either $5 or $20, and they could either spend the money themselves or on others. And the participants were asked to predict which would make them happier, and most thought spending it on themselves would make them happier and spending the larger amount of money. But actually, the data showed that it didn't matter the amount of money, and actually it was also spent the money on other people who were happier. So even if you're buying someone a cup of coffee, that will give you that often feeling of, of joy um, compared to buying them a meal or a car or you know, a house. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a friend that buys you a house, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful yeah. place to be in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I know we're running short on time. So I want to ask you lastly about the FIT method uh, that you've developed um, and also about your book. Um, so could you talk a bit more about that? Of course. Uh, so I did my doctorate in clinical psychology at, at UCL in London. And for the research part, I was looking at the psychology of sustained long-term weight loss what's involved in in the mindset because if you look at the data on diets generally the the trajectory is the same people lose weight initially but then the majority regain and they lost weight within three to five years and up to one third regain more weight than they lost initially so there's huge you know we're all aware of the obesity uh, epidemic um and there's a huge drive to find how can you achieve behavior change where you're eating more healthily and being more active. And it's not a case of knowledge. Most people know what a healthy meal looks like. They know the government recommendations to do 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week. They, know they might need to you know, eat less junk food and eat more fruit and veg, but there's a gap between what they know and what they do. And the fit method bridges that gap. It helps you to become more aware of the subconscious influences on your behavior your thoughts, your emotions, your bodily sensations, your environment, social um, influences. And I began working uh, with clients with this method. And what I found was not only were they, was their body composition changing, so they were you know, losing fat and gaining muscle, but perhaps even more importantly, they were, there were changes in their confidence and their self-esteem and how they dealt with leadership and the kind of partner they were and the relationships at work and they were able to perform at a much higher level and that's whenever I began to change tact and focus on okay how can you help people to build their emotional resilience and your emotional resilience is tied to your physical fitness too it's you know it's why marines are often so tough mentally because they're also tough physically so I'll work with people and I'll look at their nutrition their fitness and their mindset. How can you create the type of mindset that's strong and robust and helps you to get back up? Resilience isn't about getting knocked down. We all get knocked down. We're all going to get knocked. We're all going to face times in our life where we, we couldn't imagine overcoming this challenge and, you know, and, we're, and we're floored by it. But the key is how quickly do you get back up versus how long are you lying on your back for? And, and it's a skill that we can learn and develop um, so that we can continually grow even whenever we face challenges. 
and, and the book of mind for year is one that I co-wrote with another psychologist where we wrote friend to friend, one psychologist to another every day. And the, and the book is set up where you can read one page a day, you know, the 1st of January or, or the um, 17th of June. And it will give you a quote, it'll give you a message and then an invitation for the day. And the whole part of the book, is the, the purpose of the book is to help you to deal with stress, with anxious thoughts, with those times where you feel like you're getting tugged and pulled away from the direction you want to be heading in so that you can ground yourself in more presence, more mindfulness, and not only feel better about yourself, but take effective action. Um, and, and if people want to um, uh, find out more about your work, and uh, um, they can get your book from Amazon, I think, right? That's correct. That's yeah. right. It's published by a US publisher, but you can get it on Amazon. I'm on Instagram at dr.aria, and my website's dr-aria.com. Perfect. So to finish off, I usually ask um, a hypothetical question. If it was like many years from now and it's the last day for you and um, the books you've written, the videos that you've put out, like social media posts are all erased for some reason. Um, and you can write down three things that you know about life, um, of everything you know about life, business or whatever um, it may be, three things that you would leave to the world um, of your biggest lessons. Uh, what would those three things be for you? You've not, you've not gone small on that question, have you? <laughs> I like it. It would probably be one, this is it. And what I mean by that is all the books I've erased, all the, you know, anything, everything I've ever done has disappeared. It really doesn't matter because that was in the past anyway. And this is it. It's the only moment we have. The past is gone. The future is yet to come. And right now I could still find peace and contentment and happiness in that moment. And I think the more that we can live from that place, the more we can actually achieve. It's not that we'll, we'll become complacent. We're just freed from the shackles of the past and the fears of the future. The second is all is well. It's difficult to really feel that whenever the shit hits the storm. That's the wrong expression. The shit hits the storm. The shit hits the fan. <laughs> or there's a storm. Or if the shit hits the storm, even. You know, you know that's not a pleasant situation. Um, but no matter what, what I've learned is no matter what you face in life, there is often opportunity within that challenge. And it might not present itself initially, but there is a way through this, you will have the resilience to get through it. You'll find a way through it. All is well. And one day you'll look back and strangely from that moment of pain or suffering or doubt or fear, it probably knocked you onto a different path where you found huge amounts of meaning and accomplishment and success. And actually who you are and where you are wouldn't have happened if you hadn't experienced those knocks or those setbacks or those so-called failures. And the third is sort of related, but it's that all will be well. 
all is well right now and all will be well for the future. A huge part of my journey has been learning to trust, trust that all will be well. You might not have all the answers now. You might try to be, you might be trying to figure out your career or whether or not you go to university or which university or which um, path you go down or, or be dealing with your understanding your sexuality or who you are or what your friend groups are like or your relationship with your family and what, what that is actually like because we all have often a, an idea of how our family should be but the reality is very very different from that and you might be grappling with a lot but all will be well it will the universe is unfolding as it should you are where you are supposed to be and you can continue to grow along that path sometimes you just have to trust and you just have to keep on walking thank you i think those are the three things are really powerful so i hope people can take away something from that well thank you so much dr aria i think we've been able to cover quite a lot about mindfulness mindset uh, building habits and i hope people can take away um, a lot from this conversation so thank you so much for making this happen my pleasure thank you ruben for having the podcast and for wanting to reach out to you know young people and those at their um you know like you're saying probably between 15 and 30 in particular that are um on their journey and i hope hope hopefully they'll find it useful yeah thank you so much